Section 46 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 4 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 66 The Anticlimax of Imperialism, Part 2. Meanwhile, Sir Bartle Freer was sent out as Lord High Commissioner. From the moment of his appearance on the scene, the whole state of affairs seems to have undergone a complete change. Sir Bartle Freer kept back the award of the arbitrators for several months, unwilling to hand over any new territory unconditionally to Setueo, whom he regarded as a dangerous enemy and an unscrupulous despot. During this time a hostile feeling was growing up in the mind of Setueo. It was not mere enmity, it was chiefly a fear that some treachery was being planned against him. He could not but see that a total change had taken place in the demeanour of the English representatives since the occupation of the Transvaal. He had constantly before his mind the fate of Langalibalali. He appears to have really become mastered by the conviction that the English were determined to find a pretext for making war on him for annexing his territory, and for sending him to prison, as had been done with Langalabalali. When such a feeling as this exists on one side or the other, it is easy to imagine that cause of complaint must soon arise. On the English side there was an inclination to regard as offensive preparations which Setsueo insisted he meant purely as measures of defence. Sir Bartle Freer was a man who had many times rendered great service to England. He had been chief commissioner in Sindh from 1852 to 1859, and had shown great ability and energy during the Indian mutiny. Since that, he had been one of the council of the Viceroy of India. He had been for some years governor of Bombay, and he had been appointed to the council of the Secretary of State here at home he had been sent upon an important mission to the sultan of zanzibar in 1872 the object of which was to endeavour to obtain the suppression of the slave trade and he succeeded the sultan entered into a treaty for the putting down of the trade and coming to london in 1875 was the small fulwus leo or tawny lion of a season sir bartle freer seems to have been really filled with that imperial instinct about which other men only talked. He seems to have had in him something of the Cromwell, combined perhaps with a good deal of the William Penn. His was a strong nature with an imperious will and an inexhaustible energy. He was undoubtedly conscientious and high-principled according to his lights. Given a great field of action, it is possible that he might have made a deep mark upon the history of his time." The fortune which lately confined his energies to South Africa turned almost into the ridiculous what might under more favourable conditions have been the sublime. He appears to have been influenced by two strong ambitions, to spread the gospel and to extend the territory of England. It is said that in Asia he saw little opportunity for promulgating Christianity and that he yearned for Africa as a more promising scene for such a labour. In Africa his mind appears to have become at once possessed with the conviction that alike for the safety of the whites and the improvement of the coloured races 
it would be necessary to extend the government of england over the whole southern portion of that continent and to efface the boundaries of native tribes by blending them all into one imperial confederation Setsueo seems to have had considerable military ability and a certain degree of political intelligence his position made him a rival to sir bartle freer's policy and sir bartle freer appears to have made up his mind that these two stars were not to keep their motion in one sphere and that south africa was not to brook the double rule of the english commissioner and the zulu king sir bartle freer kept the award of the four english arbitrators in his hands for some months without taking any action upon it and when he did at length announce it to setsueo he accompanied it with an ultimatum declaring that the zulu army must at once be disbanded and must return to their homes this was in point of fact a declaration of war the english troops immediately invaded the zulu country and almost the first news that reached england of the progress of the war was the story of the complete and terrible defeat of an english force on january twenty second eighteen seventy nine not within the memory of any living man had so sudden and complete a disaster fallen upon english arms englishmen were wholly unused to the very idea of english troops being defeated in the field the story that an english force had been surprised outgeneraled outfought completely defeated by half-naked savages came on the country with a shock never felt since at least the time of the disasters of kabul and the jugdullug pass of course the disaster was retrieved lord chelmsford the commander-in-chief son of the lord chelmsford just dead who had been twice lord chancellor only wanted time in homely language to pull himself together in order to recover his position the war soon came to an end which every one must have expected first the defeat of the zulu king and then his capture one melancholy incident made the war memorable not only to england but to europe the young french prince louis napoleon who had studied in english military schools felt a strong desire to vary the somewhat mournful monotony of his life by taking part in the campaign he was influenced in some measure by a desire to fight under the english flag but it must be owned that he was influenced much more strongly by a wish to play to a french popular audience he persuaded himself that it would greatly increase his chances of recovering the throne of france if he could exhibit himself to the eyes of the french public as a bold and brilliant young soldier he therefore seized the opportunity of the zulu campaign to offer his services and attach himself as a volunteer to lord chelmsford's staff during one of the episodes of the war he and some of his companions were surprised by a body of zulus others escaped but prince louis napoleon was killed the news of his death created a great shock in england every one was sorry for the young gallant life so uselessly thrown away still more deep was the regret felt for the position of the bereaved mother hardly has any history a tale more tragic than hers so sudden and splendid an elevation so brilliant a career so complete a fall such an accumulation of sorrow 
is hardly equalled even in the story of marie antoinette now in the autumn of her life she was left absolutely alone youth beauty imperial throne husband son all were gone it was natural that considerations such as these should throw a halo of melancholy romance around the fate of young prince louis napoleon and should rouse in this country an amount of sympathy which harsher critics condemned as sentimental and even as maudlin it must be admitted that the poor young prince fell in a quarrel which was not his in which he had neither right nor duty to interfere and which he had taken on himself with a purely personal and political motive princes in exile have many times borne arms in quarrels not their own it is one of the privileges and one of the consolations of exile thus to be enabled to lend a helping hand to a foreign cause but then the cause must be great and just it must have some noble principle to inspire it when the orleanist princes fought under the flag of the united states they were contending for a principle dear to the lovers of freedom in every country in the world a principle which it is the part of a frenchman as well as an american to sustain but the zulu war was not in any sense a war of principle it was not even a national english war it was not a war with which the english people had any sympathy whatever it was not even a war of which the english government approved for it is a strange peculiarity of this chapter of our history that the policy of sir bartle freer and the war in zululand were condemned by no one more strongly than by the members of her majesty's government in england the dispatches sent out to sir bartle freer were constantly dispatches of remonstrance and complaint even of condemnation when prince louis napoleon therefore thrust himself into this quarrel he withdrew himself from any just claim to general sympathy regret for the sudden extinction of a young life of promise was but natural and that regret was freely given but the verdict of the public remained unaltered he had thrown away his life uselessly in a quarrel which brought no honour and for a motive which was not unselfish and was not exalted Setsueo was captured and sent into imprisonment. His territory was divided amongst the leading native chiefs. A portion of it was given to an Englishman, John Dunn, who had settled in the country very young and who had become a sort of potentate among the Zulus. Sekosini, another South African chief, was also conquered and captured, and order in a certain sense might be said to reign in South Africa once more nothing however that the government had done was so unfortunate for them in popular estimation as the official sanction they were compelled to give to the policy of sir bartle freer the war although it had ended in a practical success was none the less regarded by the english public as a blunder and a disaster the loss of english life had been terrible and worse than the mere loss of life was the fact that lives had been thrown away to no purpose hardly in any part of the country or amongst any class of politicians was there the least sympathy felt with the policy which had made the war quiet onlookers began to feel that now at last the imperialistic principle had reached its anti-climax that the elizabethan revival was turned into a burlesque even the afghan enterprise 
objectionable though it was in almost every way, did not affect the popularity of the government so much as the Zulu war. The plain common sense of England held that Sir Bartle Freer, however high and conscientious his motives may have been, was in the wrong from first to last, and that the cause of Setsueo was on the whole a cause of fairness and of justice. The whole quarrel was so small, so miserable, that no pulse even of imperialistic veins could stir with any exultation at the tidings of supposed success. It seemed ignoble work for English soldiers to be engaged in a war against a simple savage like the Zulu king, nor did anyone feel the least assurance that a permanent peace had been obtained for southern Africa, even at the cost of all this shame and blood. The Transvaal difficulty remained still unsettled. The native tribes might at any time or any chance coalesce in force sufficient to oppose us. We were threatened everywhere with fresh and useless responsibilities. We had now an African question as well as an Eastern question. Even the music halls of London rang with no plaudits to songs in praise of the South African campaign. England had gone into the war against her conscience. She had come out of it, not triumphant, but regretful and ashamed, a victor that hath lost in gain. The attitude of the government seemed one of mere penitence. Setsueo in his prison looked a much more respectable figure for history than the minister, whose unfortunate task it was to defend the policy which he had never approved, but which he had not strength of mind enough firmly to resist at the beginning. On the government fell the burden of Sir Bartle Freer's responsibilities, without Sir Bartle Freer's consoling and self-sufficing belief in the justice of his cause and the genuineness of his enterprise. The distress in the country was growing deeper and deeper day by day. Some of the most important trades were suffering heavily. The winter of 1878 had been long and bitter, and there had been practically no summer, the manufacturing and mining districts almost everywhere over the country were borne down by the failure of business. The working classes were in genuine distress. In Ireland there was a forecast of something almost approaching to famine. When distress affects the trade and the population of a country, the first impulse is always to find fault with the reigning government. Lord Beaconsfield's supporters many times asked in anger and scorn, whether Her Majesty's ministers were responsible for the bad weather. The answer which most people gave, either in words or in thought, was sound in its general logic. Her Majesty's ministers, they said, are not responsible for the seasons, but they are responsible for a policy which adds to bad seasons the burden of unnecessary wars. The authority of the government in the House of Commons was greatly shaken, Sir Stafford Northcote had not the strength necessary to make a successful leader. Like most men who want natural firmness, he occasionally put forth little efforts of a sort of petulant determination. He generally tried to be strong where he should have been yielding, and was almost invariably compelled to be yielding where he ought to have been strong. The result was that the House of Commons was becoming demoralized. The government brought in a scheme for university education in Ireland, which was nothing better than a mutilation of Mr. Gladstone's rejected bill. 
it was carried through both houses in a few weeks because the government were anxious to do something which might have the appearance of conciliating the irish people without going far enough in that direction to estrange their conservative supporters the measure thus devised had exactly the opposite effect from that which was intended it estranged a good many conservative supporters it roused a new feeling of hostility amongst the nonconformists and it did not concede enough to the demands of the irish catholics to be of any use in the way of conciliation it was plain that the mandate to use a french phrase of the parliament was nearly out the session of eighteen seventy nine was its sixth session it would only be possible to have one session more louder and louder grew the cry from the liberal side for the government at once to go to the country an argument more ingenious than substantial was got up to show that a government is bound to dissolve before the legal mandate of the parliament has run out mr gladstone in especial endeavoured to prove that there ought always to be a kind of spare session left a reserve session which the government might use if they were driven by actual necessity but which as a rule should not be turned to any account in other words mr gladstone contended that if seven years be the legal mandate of a parliament it should be an understood principle that a dissolution should not be put off longer than the close of the sixth session there seems nothing particularly satisfactory in the argument it is reasonable to contend that the term of seven years is too long for the duration of a parliament there is much to be said in favour of compelling members to meet their constituents more often than once in seven years the fact is that no parliament ever does last seven years it might be convenient and just to declare by legislation that its tenure shall be only for six for five or even for three years but it certainly seems clear that whatever be the legal term of a parliament it ought to be considered fairly within the right of a government not to dissolve before the expiration of the full time if no occasion should arise to call for a prompter dissolution in this particular instance however the persistency with which the government clung to their place began to look as if they were afraid to meet the challenge of the liberals the more they held back the more loudly and vehemently was the challenge repeated many liberals who declared that all they wanted was to meet the government at the hustings at once were probably in their hearts somewhat afraid of the result of the encounter but as mr gladstone had again and again challenged the government to appeal to the country all his followers and some who would not have followed him if they could have helped it were compelled to assume the appearance of an eagerness and courage equal to his and to echo in notes as little faltering as they could make them his call of defiance to lord beaconsfield thus the winter passed on two or three elections which occurred meantime resulted in favour of the conservatives constituencies became divided into unexpected sections or factions in one remarkable case that of the southwark election very little interest apparently was taken by the liberals the candidate they put forward was not a man to excite enthusiasm or even interest the conservative candidate mr clark was a man of ability character and influence and the result was a remarkable victory for the conservative side about this time then there was a little renewal of confidence among the friends of lord beaconsfield 
and a sudden sinking of the spirits among most of the liberals parliament met in february and the government gave it to be understood that they intended to have what one of them called a fair working session suddenly however they made up their minds that it would be convenient to accept mr gladstone's challenge and to dissolve in the easter holidays the dissolution took place on march twenty fourth eighteen eighty and the elections began the result cannot be better described than in the words of lord beaconsfield himself in the celebrated speech which depicted a sudden breakdown of the liberal party in an attack upon lord derby's government we have quoted the words before in the place to which they properly belong but they will bear repetition in their new application here only one word needs to be changed we put in ministerial where lord beaconsfield said opposition it was like a convulsion of nature rather than any ordinary transaction of human life i can only liken it to one of those earthquakes which take place in calabria or peru there was a rumbling murmur a groan a shriek a sound of distant thunder there was a rent a fissure in the ground and then a village disappeared then a tall tower toppled down and the whole of the ministerial benches became one great dissolving view of anarchy for with the very first day of the elections it was evident that the conservative majority was already gone each succeeding day showed more and more the change that had taken place in public feeling defeat was turned into disaster disaster became utter rout and confusion when the elections were over it was found that the conservative party was nowhere a majority of some hundred and twenty sent the liberals back into power no liberal statesmen in our time ever before saw themselves sustained by such an army of followers there was a moment or two of hesitation of delay the queen sent for lord hartington she then sent for lord granville but every one knew in advance who was to come into power at last the strife lately carried on had been the old duel between two great men mr gladstone had stood up against lord beaconsfield for some years and fought him alone he had dragged his party after him into many a danger he had compelled them more than once to fight where many of them would fain have held back and where none of them saw any chance of victory now at last the battle had been given to his hands and it was a matter of necessity that the triumph should bring back to power the man whose energy and eloquence had inspired the struggle the queen sent for mr gladstone and a new chapter of english history opened with the opening of which this work has to close End of section forty six